Scripture passage is uh, Deuteronomy 5, 22 through 6, 3. These are the words of the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear it and do it. And the Lord heard your words when he spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Now is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes of his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors at Sojourn. So thankful that we get to uh, receive the great mercy of hearing the word of the Lord spoken. Indeed, the opening pages of the scripture take us to brilliant heights. In the beginning, it says God, and God in the beginning created. In creation, God speaks and, and things come into existence. The universe comes into existence. The earth and the things of the earth come into existence. So when God spoke, things happened. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He, he creates things, and everything he says, the things that he is coming out of his mouth, 
it is happening. There's action with his word. And, and out of all these things that he creates, this whole matter comes together and there's an order displayed in the things that he created. So it's not just a, a mass of stuff out there, but there's order that he spoke into these things. And Paul picks up this point of creation. He says in Romans 1 verse 20 that in creation there's these invisible attributes of God. His eternal power and divine nature are perceived in creation. Or the psalmist tells us in Psalm 19 that the heavens, they declare the glory of the Lord. That day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. And so we can look at creation and, and see something of the greatness and the glory of God and of the God who created that. And God's word, in a sense, as he spoke, it, it birthed this creation that displays his greatness, his power, his glory, who he is. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses is recalling the ten words, the ten commandments that God had given. These ten words were were kind of like those creation words where God said in creation, and God said, God said ten times it said in the creation account. Here God gives ten words, and and where those ten God says came everything in creation, these ten words from God, the ten commandments, out of that comes this nation in covenant with God, this nation of Israel. And like creation, this nation, Israel, was birthed by God's power, by God's word to display his glory and greatness. And how are they to do that? Well, in a sense, Israel is to do exactly what was done in creation. When God speaks, things do what he says. And in a similar way, when God speaks and births this nation, gives them these terms, these 10 words, they're to do what he says. They're to hear his word, they're to to listen to it, to do it, to keep it all the days of their lives. God gave 10 words displaying his character, his nature, what he's like, what he desires, his requirements for him, and it shows us something of his nature, of his mercy. It shows us his power and his greatness, that he's this unparalleled God, a God who would speak. And after these 10 words, what do you do do after that scene? Moses recalls it. And and Moses works to ensure that that the way God's people responded the first time is the way that they're to respond this time. That is, that Moses works to ensure that God's people know the right response to God's word to them as a nation and that they're rightly motivated to keep that word. And so these 10 words are given, birthing this nation of Israel. This is a God who speaks and he speaks to a people. He is merciful and unparalleled. They reveal his nature, but those who hear him are to keep his word and to display his glory. So Moses, as he starts here in chapter 5, verse 22, he lifts their eyes again to remember the, the greatness of their God as displayed in his giving of these 10 words of the law. In chapter 5, verse 22, it says, These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire and the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, and he gave them to me. This is a God who not only commands, as he does in the first 
word, the first command, that you shall have no other gods before me. I'm the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. He, he doesn't just command that. He attests to it in his working, in his power, in his greatness, that there should be, he's unparalleled, and there should be no other God before him. He attests in both word and deed that he is worthy to be, uh, to be attributed to him as the one and only true God, and none other come even near him. And this mountain scene is, is thundering with that very reality, isn't it? I mean, think about that scene as they would have been at Sinai, at Mount Horeb, and they, they're taking in all that's going on. It would have been an awesome scene. They, they saw something. They saw fire and cloud and darkness. And it's interesting that, that as they're thinking about this mountain, they have to look up to the mountain to see these things, but it was God who had to come down for them to see these things. He had to descend in order for them to see this display of his glory and greatness in fire and cloud and darkness. But they also heard something. And God again, in them hearing externally, God again condescends to speak. The theologians throughout time have talked about God's speech as almost like he's lisping to us as a, as a father to an infant, as a, as a nurse to an infant. It's, it's baby talk to God to, to somehow condense who he is, the greatness and glory of who he is, and to communicate with the, his creation. He's, he's lisping to us. He's, he's giving us baby talk. God had to condescend to be seen. He had to condescend to be heard, condescend to be known. In other words, he's accommodating his creation so that they might know him and, and see his mercy and greatness, even in the very nature of coming down to speak and to be known. And from his voice come these two tablets, written on by the very finger of God, it says. And so God spoke, and he spoke definitively, and he spoke graciously. These are covenantal terms. He comes to his creation, and he seeks this legal and loving relationship with them. That's a gracious thing from this God. And though this generation who's seeing this scene on Sinai and seeing these great things, cloud and fire and darkness, and hearing the, the thundering voice of God, though they are seeing these things, and they had been through an extraordinary experience in the Exodus where they saw great signs from God, amazing power from God, they're still completely awestruck with what happens here. I mean, can you imagine going through the, the plagues as they did, seeing the things that they saw in Egypt, going through the Red Sea, and then coming to this mountain and still being completely awestruck with what you see there? And that's what Moses describes as their response. Verse 23 and as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me and all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man and man still live. They are grasping with this exceptional reality of God's greatness and glory being made known, being manifested on this mountain. And because of the phenomena that the, they see displayed, they understand that this is an exceptional experience and that it's exceptional that we're even alive. I mean, they have this real apprehension in their voice, a real sense of terror in a way, and they're not mistaken in it. God is speaking. Now you remember Psalm 29. You remember Psalm 29, verse 9, is, is the voice of the Lord went out and it does all these things. 
And in Psalm 29, verse 9, it shoots out, the voice of the Lord goes out through the temple, and all cry, glory. When he speaks, he speaks with authority. He speaks with the authority of the one true living God, because that's who he is. And Israel knows it here. They understand it. They're grasping with it. It might be baby talk to God. It's not baby talk to them. They are uh, trying to come to terms with this amazing reality that God himself is speaking. And that's what we're taking in here in this scene is that, that God is talking to man and somehow we're still alive to hear it. He speaks as one with authority. They understand that when God comes to them with ten words, like these are words that they're accountable to. They have this innate sense that that they are responsible before this God for what he is saying to them. In other words, they they know that God is not submitting these ten words for their consideration. Like, here's a few proposals for you. Maybe keep these commands that I'm giving you. They understand that when God is speaking, he is speaking with authority. And they understand that they're accountable to him. And while this scene uh, at the mountain is not immediate to Moses' audience, and it's not immediate to us, surely, we know that as well, the same God who spoke on that mountain still speaks. Speaks through his word. And there's far too little trembling. While there's no thunder here today, when we open up our Bible... This same God whose voice was heard on this mountain, who they take in the reality and are saying, I can't believe that God spoke to man and and man still lived, is still the same God who speaks today as we open up our word and we read it out loud. As we hear his voice, our, our conscience doesn't bear witness that we're accountable to his word because this is one who speaks with authority. And to rightly hear him and to hear his voice and to hear his words is to know his authority and to know our responsibility before him, to submit our lives to this voice. None stands over him. None stands over his word. And those who hear God's word are responsible for responding rightly to the things that he has said because he is God. It is in his great mercy that he has spoken at all and that we can still hear it. And so when we turn to the word, yeah, we say, this is the word of the Lord, and that ought to at least provoke something of a thanks be to God, because God is speaking and we're still alive. So we should take up this word and read it, knowing kind of the unique voice that is, that is being heard here, knowing that we're accountable for the right kind of response. We're responsible for the ways that we hear from the voice of God and live. And Israel gets a sense of God's authority as they hear this voice on the mountain, but they also get a sense of the incompatibility of God and them. Verse 25, they said, Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speak out of the midst of fire as we have and still lived? Again, they just can't wrap their mind around this reality, this amazing reality that they're alive after hearing this voice. The God who had to condescend, who had to come down to be known and heard is being merciful in this. And they get a sense of that. 
Man, how many times have you thought, like, man, what would it have been like to take in the scene at Sinai? Wouldn't it have been this awesome experience to be there? But I'm not sure we would have felt that if we were there. We'd probably feel like our very lives are threatened like they did. Like, if we're here any longer, we might die. Never felt threatened like that. I'm not sure it's a great experience. It's an experience, but they feel threatened. This is the living God speaking, and they think they might die if we hear any more. They're coming to terms with the incompatibility of God and his voice and who they are, and trying to like, I don't know how we're going to live. They're seeing his glory and his greatness. They're seeing it, they're hearing it, and they're understanding their own incompatibility. Isaiah does the same. Isaiah chapter 6, he gets this vision of the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up. And around this throne are these seraphim that are two wings cover their faces. They won't look upon the glory and the greatness of God. Two wings are covering their feet. Two wings they fly with. And they're uh, shouting out, shaking the very temple. They're shouting out, holy, holy, holy. And and Isaiah, the only thing that can come out for a second is like, woe is me. He, He He's trying to come to terms with like who I'm getting this vision of and what's happening here and, and me. And he comes out with woe. Peter, he does something similar when Jesus gets in his boat and says, why don't you go ahead and cast the net over there? I think you'll catch some fish. Indeed, he does catch lots of fish, almost weighs the boat down. And what does he say to Jesus? Depart from me. He's trying to come to terms with a sense of his own incompatibility in the presence of God. And these responses, and they're all over the scripture. John, in Revelation, he goes and he drops before him as if he's dead. I mean, there's all over the scripture. And these responses are probably more appropriate than we know and probably more distant from our own lives than they should be. I mean, when's the last time the greatness of God struck us? When's the last time his glory awed us or his word overwhelmed us? Perhaps we don't have a sense of the awe of God, or we've lost a sense of God's transcendence, that he is this God who's over us and above us, that he speaks with authority, and that there's some incompatibility with his, his nature and who we are by nature. I wonder if command number three, to not take the Lord's name in vain, seems like kind of no big deal. I mean, if you're going to have a God... Yeah, he doesn't want any other gods before him. So number one makes sense. And sure, if we're not going to have other gods before him, number two makes sense. Like cut out all these other idols. Great. Those make sense. But number three is like, yeah, we don't want to take your name in vain. Sure. But it wouldn't be that big of a deal if we did, right? But because of who number one is, (laughs) that he's the Lord God, that all of a sudden makes all the other ones fall into place. That... Now taking the Lord's name in vain is a major matter. It's no small thing to misrepresent the very name of this one true living God. And we can be far too casual with God and the things done in his name. We can be too, we can too quickly claim God told me this without remembering what it means to say that God spoke something. We can be too flippant with the scripture, rarely pausing to remember the God who's speaking to us, and then it's a mercy that we're hearing this and are still alive. We can be too nonchalant with representing and reflecting the very name of God in this world that he's created. We are far too comfortable at times with the incompatibility that stands between us and God. 
And notice here that this isn't because of their own sin. Certainly that is a sense of it, right? They probably feel a little bit of that. That's not what anything is mentioned here about their own sin and failure. They're grasping with the greatness and glory of God. And so while we're too comfortable maybe with that incompatibility, perhaps the problem isn't that we're so sinful, is that we have such a low view of God that we don't see Him as this great and glorious God. The Sinai generation that came out of Egypt, they had all their problems, right? Lots of them. We could give a list. But in this moment, they understood probably better than we do at times the incompatibility between them and God. And they were right. In verse 26, they asked this question, and it's a really good question. Who is this that could hear the voice of God and still live? That's a good question. They're right. They're more right when we think, well, why wouldn't we be able to live? Their question's better than that question. And because of the incompatibility they feel before this God, they ask Moses in their apprehension, verse 27, they ask him, go near and hear all the Lord God will say and speak to us. All the Lord our God will speak to you and and we'll hear you and we'll do it. Go for us. We're scared we might die we hear anymore. They understand that God is speaking and he's speaking with authority and, and they just want it relayed to them by Moses instead of hearing it anymore. They're not going to avoid responsibility, at least stated here, like hey, they're not avoiding that yet. Um, they commit. So, hey, you relay it to us, we'll hear it, we'll do what it says. Their commitment then is to hear Moses and hear God's words through Moses and to do it. That's the right response. And I think what Moses is getting at here as he says these things again is that that is the right response for this new generation as well. That, that response of saying, Moses, you go hear it and then you relay it and we'll do all that you say to do, that's the response that they're to have here on the edge of the promised land. So God's response to this request of a, a mediator and a commitment is positive. Verse 28 shows us God, how he's responding to them sending Moses. He heard these words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I've heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They're right in all that they have spoken. Did you just hear God said that they were right? That might have been the first time in their history. Like that generation had all sorts of problems, and here God affirms them. Yep, they got it right that time. They have a right response. And it's God's desire that that response be fueled then. And so he gives them this this good motivation to not only hear, but to do all the things that Moses is relaying to them. Look at verse 29. Oh, God says, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all of my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. What does God want for his people? What is God desiring for Israel? What's his very heart toward them? It's shown right here. He wants it to go well with them. This is repeated over and over and over again in Deuteronomy. In chapter 4, verse 1, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you, and do them that you may live. Chapter 5, verse 33, he's going to say it again. You shall walk in all the way the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live. Chapter 6, verse 3, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God has promised you in this land. He repeats it over and over and over. This is what God wants for them. This is God's desire, his very heart for them, that it may go well with them. 
that they might live. And because this is his very heart, he tells them to do a few things. Fear me and keep my commands, is what he says in verse 29. Oh, that they would do this always. That's his desire. That they had such a heart always to fear me and to keep all of my commands. So when we think of the Old Testament God, you might have heard that like he's this really grumpy God that just kind of wants to command things. And that's just such a false picture of the, the God of the Scripture. Here's a God whose heart for his people is full of mercy, abounding in steadfast love, who wants good things for his people. This is the motive he gives to them from these good longings. Part of the motivation, of a right motivation for fearing God and keeping his commands is life. The motive is that you might live, that it might go well with you. So the, the commands of God, they express not only God's character and God's heart, they also show how to live in right relationship with him. And in living in right relationship with him, according to these commands, is life. Things go well for them if they fear God and keep his commands. Now, there's this ancient line of thought that wants to disconnect these two, that wants to disconnect obedience and life and pull them apart. It came from a serpent's mouth. The serpent hissed, did God really say you couldn't eat any tree in this garden? Now, in a crafty way, what is the serpent doing? He's undermining God's word. This is not what God said, but he's undermining that sense of authority and, and the word of God. But he's also doing something else in saying, any tree? What he's insinuating is that, why would God do that? He's holding out on you. He's separating the, the character of God and obedience to God separating his character from his word, life from obedience, taking the, the severing the, the giver and the gift, which blurred the lines and the thought of who God is and what he's like to Adam and Eve so much that they started to doubt. Maybe God is holding out on me. Maybe this command isn't really for my good because there's other trees that look good and might taste good too. So maybe I can't trust that that is a good command not to eat of it. And it led to some doubt and made disobedience to this God desirable. And this isn't only an ancient temptation. Right, have you ever thought, there's two choices. I can either have fun or I can obey God. I thought that growing up in Sunday school. I thought, here's the fun life and here's the Christian life. And you got to pick, because you can't go back and forth. You can either have fun, or you can live the way God wants you to live. You can live the good life, or you can live the Christian life. And what is that other than the similar thought of, did God really say that you couldn't eat of any tree? What kind of God would do that? Any tree? And there's a good tree right over there. He's holding out on you. Perhaps his command wasn't really for your good, and maybe he's not good. It calls into question the goodness of God, separates his, his character, his heart from his commands, so that those commands then are starting to seem burdensome. That They're harsh, maybe. God is trying to snuff out our actual fun and joy in this world. Maybe he's controlling and demanding and not a God you want to live under. 
But if we put those things back together and his commands reflect his heart and his character, which they most certainly do all through the scripture, then all of a sudden they're not harsh words anymore, but the way to life, the life that God made us to live, that he made you for. All of a sudden, if God's character, his nature, this loving and merciful God is connected to his commands, then those commands aren't killjoys trying to zap the fun out of your life. They're ways for you to learn how to enjoy him as you were created to do. Now, I dearly love my children, and I have had to command some things for their life. Like, don't run with the scissors. Like, that's a command. Am I being controlling? I don't think so. I think I'm being loving. I don't want you to get stabbed with scissors. There's a decent chance you've only been walking, running for a short number of years that you could trip and fall and that end in disaster. I want life for you, that it may go well with you. How does that happen? You got to listen to this command. Don't run with the scissors. And Moses told them in chapter one, like God has carried you like a father carries his son. And he commands them here to do as a father would command his son so that they'll have life. He wants life for his people, but he knows that's only found in right relationship with me. And how are God, God's people to know how to live in right relationship with him? How are they to know and to live the way that God wants them to live? Well, God reveals it to them and he reveals it in commands. Don't do some things and do some things. Life then is bound up in the commands of God. They are good and merciful from a good and merciful God. His character, his nature, who he is, is connected with his word and what he has commanded them to do. Jesus, when he came, he, he came and he said, I came to give you life and to give you life abundantly. Well, how does he give that life? You remember the context? He says that in John chapter 10, where he says, I'm the good shepherd. If you want to enter the, the fold, the sheepfold, you've got to enter one way. There's only one door and I'm the door. Right? I'm the gate into the sheepfold. you got to enter through me. And then what do you do? His sheep, they, they follow his voice. They don't follow another's voice. They only follow his voice. Now think about it. Is, is Jesus being harsh or demanding or controlling or mean or snuffing out all of our fun when he commands them to follow his voice? No, he's commanding them to do something that is the abundant life thing. Right? If you want abundant life, this is the way it goes. He's keeping those sheep from thieves that will steal and kill and destroy. That's what they do. He says, follow me. He's not being demanding and controlling in an in a unmerciful way. He's being extremely merciful, saying, follow my voice. Every other voice you follow is going to steal, kill, or destroy you. That's its end. So what a merciful thing to say, hey, you want to enter through me. That's the, the good way. And also follow my voice. It's, yeah, it, it is a command. You're going to need to do it, but it's also for life. It's for the abundant life that I want to give you. He's being so good to us in demanding obedience. He's not controlling us. He's being loving. He's showing the path of life. And so if that's true, the, the people of God then should be people who are committed to obedience to God, committed to holiness before God, because we know that in keeping these commands and obeying what God has told us to do, there's life. This is why you can see the psalmist talk about the law the way he does, right? If Psalm 119 felt a little disconnected at times, like he gushes goes on and on about the law of God, the statutes and the rules. Oh my goodness, man. Like, 
What are you talking about? But when you see this is connected to who God is, then all of a sudden we look to the law and we see it revealing the character and nature and beauty of God. And we actually see that that is connected to how we're to live and it is life. And we think, we're not saying enough. How many verses are there in Psalm 119? Like 186? There's not enough. Not enough. We could go on and on about his word. And the same motivation that they might have life is re-emphasized with Moses' words that he's going to communicate to this next generation. That's where he's going to start in verse 30. God is going to send him and say, go and say to them, turn to your tents, right? We're back at Sinai, but Moses is going to move forward. But you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them. They may do them in the land that I'm giving you to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. They were to do and keep God's word and Moses' word, as he's relaying God's word, they're to do and keep that. And, and they are to receive from Moses as they were to receive from God. And Moses' words are to receive the same commitment that they're giving to God's words. That they are to do and keep Moses' words in, as well. And God helps encourage this obedience, again, with the same purpose and motivation. That it, they might live, that it might go well with them, that they might live long the land that I'm giving them. So recognizing Moses as God's authorized mediator and committing to obey was good and right for them to do, and, and Moses is kind of implying it's also the, the right response for you today. It's good and right for you to have the same response. This new generation needs this too. And so now he says in six one, now this commandment, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess. All right, so statutes and rules, he said this before in chapter 4, verse 44. In chapter 5, verse 1, and what's clear from those two places in the context here is that these are not just the words that were spoken at Horeb. These are the words that Moses is getting ready to communicate to them through the rest of Deuteronomy. He's saying that the commitment to do and keep those words and from that generation is the same commitment that you need to have toward my words today. You need to do them, need to keep them. It wasn't just for the Exodus generation, it's for this generation's, and these are referring to my words here on the edge of the promised land. This sermon is to have the same force as those words had at Sinai because they are God's words. And these words are meant to prepare them for the promised land, that they may do them there, is what he says. And here's what they're doing, verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's son, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Chapter 5, verse 29. Chapter 6, verse 2. There's these words that are there, the repeated. These are what God's desires for his people that they might fear him. They both speak of fear. God desires that his people fear him. And in both places, it's tied to their obedience of him. Now, there is no right fear of God then apart from obedience to God. So when we think about the fear of God, we need to think about obedience to God. But this fear of God is not dread or terror. 
as if they're afraid of God. That doesn't quite capture it. Remember, God's intention and purpose for them. He wants things to go well with them. He wants to give them life. He wants to bless their lives in the promised lands. He wants to multiply them greatly. He is this good and gracious God who wants good things for his people. And, and he even describes the land of the, as the land of abundance. It's flowing. It's got plenty. It's a good place. And it's flowing with milk and honey. I mean, that doesn't sound like paradise to me, maybe, but like I get the imagery, right? It's, he's speaking of paradise. This is an abundant place. In other words, this is not a God to move away from. And his words aren't to be words of dread and fear and terror if you want to rightly receive them. It's to receive the opposite. In other words, the fear of God is the good life. It's the life God made you to live. Obedience is the good life. It's the path to blessing. Now, I've heard that when encountering a bear, and I confirm this on bearsmart.com, <laughs> that when you encounter a bear, say you're walking on a tra- trail and you encounter a bear, you're to back away slowly. Just keep eye contact, know what the bear's doing, but just kind of back away slowly. Hopefully the bear won't run after you. Bears are faster than you. You're not going to make it. Don't run. Slowly back away. Normally, when we fear something, that's what we do. Slowly back away. But that's a different kind of fear than the fear God is speaking about here. That's a little bit of dread and terror, and rightly so, right? A bear could literally rip your face off. Back away slowly, okay? Fear of God is different. You know, one uh, pastor said this, this fear leans toward the Lord, When thou really knowst God, thou shalt be thrice happy if thou dost run toward him, falling down before him, worshiping him with bowed head yet glad hearts, all the while fearing toward him and not away from him. That's the right fear of the Lord. Do you see this, these words here? When you, You don't think about this when you think about the fear of God often. Thrice happy? Worshiping with a glad heart because you're fearing toward him. You're leaning toward him. That's the fear of God. It's not leaning and slowly backing away. Leaning back and slowly backing away. It's a leaning toward the Lord and it's doing it in gladness and, and happiness. This is what God wants for his people. This is what God wants from his people. That they lean toward him in fear. And the foundation for the right fear of God according to the scripture is what he says over and over and over again in Deuteronomy. It's that they hear this foundation of fear of God is built on hearing from him. And that's the same foundation for us today. To rightly fear God, we need to rightly hear from God. So are we hearing God's word and God's voice rightly? Are we committing to hear it rightly, which is a commitment to obedience? We're we're saying before God, if this is God and this is his word, then we as his people need to be saying, I'm committed to obeying it. Not making excuses of like, well, I know I'm going to mess up. No, commit to obeying this God. He commands of us wholehearted loyalty. So let's not give room for making a way out like, well, I know I'm going to. Yeah, you might fail. We can talk about that too. But just commit your life to wholeheartedly obeying him, giving everything to him, obeying his word that he has given to us. And do you see God's purpose in this obedience? Life. It may go well with us. There's a good design. 
We're made to know and fear God, to obey his words. He's good. And he has a good purpose in calling us to obedience. But did you catch chapter 5, verse 29? There's a bit of a warning there. Pastor Jay hinted at it earlier. It hinted that they won't always fear God and keep his word. God longs for that to happen. Oh, that they might fear me and do this forever, right? Like, keep this word. But there's this hint that they're not going to. And we indeed know that when God spoke that for the Exodus generation, that generation at Sinai, that things didn't go well and wouldn't go well. The Exodus generation, they didn't fear God rightly, and they died in the wilderness. And Moses is speaking to this new generation because God wants something better for them. He wants something better for us. That's why he tells us over and over again that they might live. That's what he wants. He wants something better for us when we hear and encounter God's word. He wants us to fear him and hear it rightly. It's why he sent another mediator. Moses, the prophets. Moses was his covenant mediator, and so were the prophets and the priests and the kings. They were covenant mediators, the ones that would go between God and man, the ones that would lead the people in covenant obedience to God, to help them to rightly hear from God and fear his name and walk in obedience to him. But Moses, even as he speaks here, is days away from his life being over. He looks into a land that he can never enter because of his own sin and because of the sin of his people. The prophets, the priests, the kings, once they were in the promised land, they couldn't keep them there. They couldn't keep them from breaking out in sin and rebellion against this God. But our covenant mediator is a covenant mediator without sin. One who can lead us into the paradise that God provides for all who would trust in this covenant mediator. God sent another. His name is Jesus. And indeed, he fully fulfills the old covenant as this one who is fully man. He took on its curse, died underneath the curse of the old covenant, though he was perfect, and was raised and justified underneath it. And even now, is in paradise. So not only then can this new covenant mediator lead us into the promised land, the paradise that God has given to all those who would come to this new covenant mediator, Jesus, but he can keep us there because we come and we stay in that place based on his merits, not our own. Because that's true, let's be a church who hear from God, who hears his words and fears his name and wants to obey him in everything and commit our lives to obedience. Today, we need to hear his voice, and if we hear his voice, let's not harden our hearts, but rightly fear God, rightly hear God, and keep his commands. Because in keeping those commands, what is so clear from Deuteronomy here, there's life. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father Dylan said it. 
may we be a people who hear your words and respond rightly. Lord, we are grateful that you are a God who speaks and that you don't just speak, Lord, you pursue, you care. Your words mean everything. And you hold us accountable to those words, God. Where would we be if you didn't? Father, help us to see as Israel saw our desperate need for the, the mediator. God, we can't measure up. Our hearts are idle factories, Lord. We will turn aside. We will look to other things. And yet, because Christ came, because the word became flesh and did what we could never do, Lord, our standing doesn't change before you if our eyes are fixed on him. So help us, God. Help us see your holiness. I pray that it would bring a healthy fear in our hearts, in our attitudes towards you, God, that we would see your greatness and your glory and that we would revere it and that, Lord, it would, it would move us to worship and to obedience, to gratitude for what you did, how you provided. You didn't just speak and, and leave us hanging under your judgment, God. You spoke and you rescued you came to our side. You helped us where we couldn't help ourselves, Lord. We pray that we would be a people who would walk after you with our whole hearts. And where we don't, God, help us to be faithful, to trust you in that process of sanctification, to, to be a people quick to repent when we do step in the wrong direction. God, thank you for your patience. Thank you for condescending for providing the faith that we might look up to you in Christ. Amen. We are going to respond with a song that's about the fact that we couldn't hold ourselves, but somebody did, and he continues to hold us fast. Would you please stand as we sing? <laughs>